Good morning. Good morning. Good to see everybody. We made it out. The first cold snap of the year. And um, yeah, glad you guys all braved the winter storm. We didn't let Nicole beat us. We won't let this cold beat us either. Okay. And uh, just as we start, you can go, we're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark, our series. We're in uh, chapter 11 today. And as we get into it, I just wanted to say, Amy, uh, I think it was a word from God this morning. He wanted me to let you know for that dessert, any, I don't know if you're in the room, any kind of fruit cobbler or pie should be fine. Okay, so, um, if she, okay, you, okay, great. I'm glad Jesus wanted me to tell you that this morning, so. All right, hey, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. We're picking up. We're kind of getting towards the end of uh, the ministry and life of Jesus, but this is where Mark really kind of slows down and narrows in because uh, what we're going to be looking over the next, you know, really five months uh, through as we finish, which sounds crazy, but we've already been going seven months in the Gospel of Mark. We just got a few more months as, as we finish out. We're taking a pause uh, for Advent, and then we'll pick back up in the new year. Uh, but but it just focuses in really on the, the last like week of the life of Jesus before his, his death and his resurrection. And so Mark really, you know, in, in a gospel, in a, in a story that's kind of been one, one event after another, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then that happened, and then they went there, uh, Mark slows in and focuses in on the life of Jesus and, and, and the, that, that last kind of week of his, of his life and what he went through and, and as he entered into Jerusalem and the importance of that. And so we're going to pick that up today. Uh, but before we do, I thought I'd just read through the passage. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll jump in. So, so Mark chapter 11, verse 1, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, well, the Lord needs it. Great trump card. And we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and they found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many of the people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the field. And those who went ahead of them and those who followed, they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for your word. Uh, Thank you that we get to read this and know that it is just as true and real for us now as it was for your disciples 2,000 years ago. And the people that that shouted and called out salvation to you, uh, we we sing that true in our hearts today. Jesus, meet with us. Help us to leave in more faith and trust in you than we had when we came in this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So if I said, there's no place like home, all right, you guys would know the end of it, right? Like the Wizard of Oz is kind of a big deal. If you haven't seen it yet, these are going to be some spoilers, but it's like 90 years old at this point. So it's your fault. Okay. If you haven't seen it yet or even heard the story yet, but you know, we all know the Wizard of Oz, like it's, it's been a, a you know, big kind of part of our culture and, and we, we all know about it, we've probably seen it, we were probably in a play in elementary school in the Wizard of Oz and 
you know, there's like the creepy monkeys, right? Like there's the whole thing. Uh, and it, it, the Wizard of Oz was a big deal for a few reasons. Like, you know, the time it came out, it was like right on the brink of this, this, this Second World War that was about to break out. And it kind of brought this peace and joy to a nation, you know, in America. It was revolutionary in the way they filmed it. You know, it used the tri-strip film and the Technicolor was, was pretty revolutionary for that time. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that made it, made it uh, you know, just, just so, so neat. I mean, it covered like the tornadoes, the Dust Bowl, all that stuff. I mean, there's so much packed into this film and the history of it and the making of it. Uh, but, but what's interesting is like there's so much around it that we kind of miss the like build up and, and, and then the letdown of the film, right? Like Dorothy and her friends, they're going on this, this journey to try to get, you know, the lion, he wanted courage, and the tin man wanted a heart, and the, the scarecrow wanted a brain. Dorothy just wanted to get back home to her family and make sure everybody was okay. And, and they, they go through all these trials and perils, and then they get to the, the Emerald City, right? Like they get, and it's beautiful, and there's the cat, and they're going through, and there's like horses that change colors, and they're singing, and it's, it's gorgeous, you know, there's the yellow brick road, everything's beautiful, and they finally get to see the wizard, right? All right, this is where the big spoilers happen, so plug your ears if you need to, you'll catch on if you need to miss the opening illustration of the sermon, but the, so they get, and they're, they're asking, you know, the wizard for these things, and they're asking, and then in the movie, what does little Toto do? Anybody remember? He pulls the curtain back. And it's not a wizard at all. It's just some guy. It's a phony, right? It's a fake. And what we find out is in that moment, you have this incredible kingdom with no king at all. Right? You have the majesty of the, of the, the emerald city. You have the palace guards. You have the, you know, the, the carriages, the, the beauty, the, the pomp and cir- circumstance. But then there's just no king. There's no wizard. It's a kingdom, and, and everybody was getting what they wanted, but they didn't have a king. And what we're, gonna, what we're seeing today, and what we're going to see over the next few months as we look through the life of Jesus in this gospel, is that Jerusalem and what everybody was wanting is that they wanted the kingdom with no concern for the king at all. Because what they wanted what they were cheering for, what they were asking for in the, in the psalm that they were quoting here as they, they called out Hosanna, meaning save us or salvation, as they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and blessed is the, com- the kingdom, the coming kingdom of our father David. What they wanted was judgment, prosperity, and glory, and they didn't care who actually got him there or what the king required of them in return. See, the title of the section, like it may say something in your Bible like the triumphal entry or if you grew up in a church that celebrated Palm Sunday and stuff, this would be pretty, no, pretty commonly known as, as the triumphal entry. But the idea of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and, and having like carrying victory and glory with him, it's, it's a well-intended but really kind of a misguided interpretation of this passage of Scripture because it puts nationalistic hope and glory-filled dreams before the reality of what Jesus was coming to do. See, the entry that Jesus was coming was far from triumphal. Jesus hadn't won any great battles. I mean, he, he, he had proven himself victorious and powerful over, you know, demonic powers and, and even death, raising Lazarus from the dead and disease and all of these things. But he hadn't done anything to do what they were asking him to do here. I mean, he came at best, this crowd that was following him, 
They were, they were being stirred up by the disciples, hoping that some kind of movement would finally kickstart. I mean, Jesus had proved himself to be an incredible teacher, powerful, come in the name of God. But at best, he just like gathered a bunch of people who were like on the margins of society and he hadn't really gained any real like governmental power or cultural elitism for himself. So at best, this crowd was just stirred up by the disciples, hoping that a movement would spread. But let's remember... Ronald Rollheiser, I think Fred's used these words before. Crowds can't discern truth. Crowds really can't think. These verses that, that we read, they're loaded with Old Testament prophecies and coming of the Messiah. So these people, you've got to remember, they're traveling into Jerusalem for Passover, the big annual feast where everyone comes and remembers the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. And as they're coming in, they would have had stories and verses from the Bible going around in their head that they would have heard and memorized as kids around the dinner table with families. Like verses from Genesis 49 that tell of Judah, the tribe of Judah being the ruler of Israel. And it says he's going to tether his donkey to a vine and his colt to the choicest branch. And they thought, the, and, and there's a picture in that, that passage of the Messiah standing on the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus just came from, and brings glory and deliverance to God's people. Man, the people would have been thinking about the special occasion of a colt being ridden uh, as they brought in the ark of God in 1 Samuel 6 and the priest who rescued Israel in Numbers 19 or in Deuteronomy 21, the, 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 the cow that had never been yoked or ridden uh, being taken in atoning for murder in Deuteronomy 21. See, these are the things, the signs, the words, the stories that would have been going around the people's minds as they shouted, save us, as they shouted, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord in the coming kingdom of David. They would have thought, finally, this is going to happen. Glory is going to be restored for Israel once again. But what they didn't understand is that this was, as John said, the Lamb of God who's come to take away sins. See, they were hoping once again that Jesus was going to come and kill their enemies and put them back on a, on a place of high standing in the world. I mean, they're, they're thinking about the, the kingdom of David where people would travel, the kingdom of David, people would travel from all over the globe and world leaders would come and see the riches of Solomon's temple. That's what they had in mind. But instead, they have a savior who's coming to give his life and die at the hands of their enemies for their enemies themselves. See, there would have been a crowd of people traveling to Jerusalem, getting ready for that. They would, they would be thinking about when Egypt, when Babylon and Assyria had taken them captive and they were being released from, from, uh, from captivity. Turn real quick, if you want, to, to Psalm 118. See, verses 7, 7 through 10, they, they, were, they were trying to live out Psalm 118. It's this, like, this psalm that was just full of hope and expectation, and they... they Psalm 118 is a psalm that they would sing together as they, as they traveled to different feasts and, and celebrations in Jerusalem from, from wherever they were. So in verse 25 it says, Save us, Lord save us, Lord grant us success. That's Lord save us in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's Hosanna. Verse 26, Blessed the one who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we will bless you. The Lord is our God. He has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So they're welcoming Jesus to come in. They're welcoming him. Their, their, their deepest desire, their strongest desire in this moment is to see in their minds the wrong things made right. right? The evil Roman Empire to finally get what, what's, what's coming to them. 
But the problem is, with that, their strongest desire was that. But the strong, like oftentimes, our strongest desire and our deepest desire are not the same thing. Right? We know this to be true if you've ever been around a human under the age of like 15. All right? Middle schoolers, I love you. Grade schoolers, I love you. But you guys would live off of Cheetos and ice cream instead of real food. Right? And there's some of us in the room that are over the age of 15 that would do that as well. <laughs> right? I tried, to, I tried to make it not personal. But no, think about, like, think about like, the food that we eat and love so much. Right? Like our deepest desire that we were made is to eat food that makes us live. Right? It's like to, to nourish our bodies, to grow well and stuff. But like how many times, and I'm saying this like, like as someone who just asked about cobbler and pie. I did say fruit, but you know, it's, come on. All right. Like how many times have we chosen, and I'm not, this is not to bring any shame because we're on the same boat here. How many times have we chosen a food-like product over real food? Right? Let's do interpretation by voting. Okay. Okay. Uh, this means actual food. This means not real food. All right. Uh, Oreos. All right. That is a food-like product. Okay. It's not real food, right? All right. Uh, this is good. Cheetos. My father-in-law calls them beach carrots. Because <laughs> at the beach, we would take carrot sticks for our kids. And he said, I've got my beach carrots and they're Cheetos. <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, ice cream. Oh, okay. This is why we had church councils for the last 2,000 years. Okay, all right. All right, but you get what I'm saying, right? Like, our deepest desire is to eat food. Like, we were made to eat and enjoy food with other people so that we grow, like, physically, physiologically, and, like, in, in community and stuff. But we trade that out for our strongest desire, right? Like, like it hits where, like, everyone in the house is asleep and you just got done watching the game and it, you're like, I know I shouldn't eat something right now because it's 1130. And if I eat something, I'm going to get a sugar rush and I'm not going to sleep well. But your strongest desire takes over in that moment, right? That's not the deepest desire. Our deepest desire, like even, even as human beings, like our deepest desire is to be in right relationship with God and the people around us. But how often do our strongest desires overcome our deepest desires. And they come in conflict all the time. See, the people, what they wanted was the kingdom of David to come and to be established. That was their strongest desire. But it was the shallow, unprocessed version of what their deepest desire was, which was God to come and restore all things. See, the deepest desire, like I said, to be in right relationship with God and the people around us, the deepest desire that we all have as created humans created beings by a loving good creator that's that's benevolent and kind and gracious is to be found in eden once again but our strongest desires help us and make us carry that out in ways that god didn't intend right i mean think about it right now like we just got done with like midterms and did that spark up a little bit of trauma and like like who's just not ready for 2024 already yeah right i mean 2024 like all elections the political thing it's all just it's all just trying to create in everybody's own little world and dream trying to create the utopia of eden that we lost just on their own terms right that's what every political party is trying to do 
whether it's by like capitalism and extreme individualism, or it's by this, this kind of more social movement of, of having enough systems and, and justice processes in place to where everybody can be restored. Once again, it's humans trying to fulfill our deepest desire, but our strongest desires get in the way, and we end up with like tribalism and hate and disunity instead of a, a truly like Eden experience where we're in right relationship with God and other people. See, in the world that Jesus lived in, it was a collectivist culture. So it's different than what we grew up in. A collectivist culture basically meant that a person, an individual, felt responsible to live honorably and to not bring shame on their community and their family at large. Okay, like we don't have that because we live in an extremely individualistic culture. We, where, where I love the way Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he says that self-creation is just a daily routine of our social imagination, which basically is like where we get phrases like, you do you, and like, you look out for what, what's best for you, like, hey, you got to live your truth, you got to do what's right for you, and, and, and it, it all goes back to Descartes, right? That's what you were going to say. Like, it's all Rene Descartes where it says, I think, therefore I am. And we think that that's tr- so true. That I, I think that I don't need that in my life, so I'm not going to. And our strongest desires overtake our deepest desires. See, we all want the kingdom of God and what it has to offer. Protection, power, plenty, a seat by the throne. But we want it where we're the king and not God. See, we can find ourselves saying so many times, Jesus, please be with me. Jesus, please be with me, and please build my kingdom first. Right? We can find ourselves doing that. I mean, we we try to mask our inability to differentiate our own thoughts, conclusions, and feelings from the people around us because we get our news from a barrage. Well, anyways, I don't have time to get it. That was a whole different uh, rabbit trail. I'm not going to do that. So here's some warning signs for us, okay? Some warning signs that we learned from today. Warning signs that we maybe have fallen into the mindset of wanting the kingdom without the king. Because we have a good king who's on the throne right now, who's asking us to join him in his work of making all things new, of making wrong things right before he comes back and finally does it once and for all. So here's the first, here's the first kind of warning sign in your life if, if you want the kingdom without the king is that we carry the mission with more judgment than mercy. We carry the mission of Jesus with, with more judgment than mercy. See, the crowd was fully prepared for David's kingdom to return. David's kingdom was a kingdom that was strong in battle, that was followed with, with monetary prosperity and peace during Solomon's reign. See, it was, it was when the enemies of Israel, they were afraid to attack and the economy was good, the nationalistic slogans being proclaimed were basically saying one thing, it's our turn to be in charge again, and there's not room for anyone else who believes, lives, or thinks differently than we do. They wanted judgment for their enemies more than they wanted beauty for everyone. See, they, they had forgotten that, that the whole mission of God by choosing Israel was that God said, hey, I'm going to choose you and I'm going to bless you so that you become a blessing to many. That's how God's always worked. Choose the one to bless the many. And they had forgotten, and what they said was, no, no, we just want all the blessing, and, and everyone else can, can die, basically. I mean, that, that was their goal. Their goal, their goal was globe, like global reign and power once again, 
They had forgotten that, that the one true God who came was a God who said, who said uh, if anyone blesses you, I'm going to bless them. See, uh, we had Jesus come, and he lived this out once again because uh, he, he did this in a real... Do you, do you know the thing that was the most controversial, that got him in the most trouble... Uh, all, all, throughout the, all throughout the Gospels, the thing, if you've been keeping count of all the times that people had a problem with him, do you know the one thing that, that got him in the most trouble with his friends was who he ate with? See, Jesus came because where, where's the best place to bless? Well, like, where's the, the best place to bless somebody? Like, what do we do whenever somebody, like, graduates or they get a promotion or they do something, you know, they do something to celebrate? What do we do? We have a party. Yeah, we eat food, right? We, 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 we invite people together. And we have a food because what we're doing is, hey, you've been blessed and we're going to bless you. It's kind of wired in us. And so, but, but, but in Jesus' culture, the table had become, a, instead of being a place where uh, everyone was welcome and you bless each other, it, it had become a place uh, where uh, you basically had to decide two things. You had to decide who was in and who was out and who was at the best seat. So it became a, a way for you to, be, to gain social standing because the master of the house or the most powerful person would sit at the middle of the table and from there, the people, based on who's the most important and the least important, would sit along the table, either closest or farthest from them. And so for Jesus to, to go to, up to Zacchaeus, say, hey, I'm going to come to your house and I'm going to eat with you and your friends. And that was a big no-no. That was a big no-no because another reason is that the temple had been rebuilt. So the temple was destroyed a few hundred years before Jesus. It had just been rebuilt. Uh, but the glory of God had not fallen on the temple the way it had the first time. And so the Pharisees, who were really, really zealous and eager to see the glory of God restored to Jerusalem and the temple again, they started putting two and two together because they thought, well, the first time it came, here are the things we had. We had you know, religious purity. We had government power. We had all these things. And so they said, well, well, what we weren't doing the first time, they concluded, was eating with people that weren't faithful practicing Israelites. So what we'll do is we'll just make a rule that if you eat with anyone who's not a faithful practicing Israelite, like if we all do that together and we're all just faithful enough, then, then God's glory will come. And, and so, they, so they got, like, it was, it was, it was uh, right to get kicked out of the community if you're eating with people that wasn't a faithful, practicing Israelite. And so Jesus comes along, and he's supposed to be the guy who's going to restore the glory to the temple. And what he was trying to tell them is, no, 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 I'm going to bless everyone. I am the presence of God, okay? You guys are missing that. I'm the presence of God, and I've come not for those who need saving, but for the sick. A doc, you know, people who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick ones are. The Son of Man, I, I didn't come to be served at a table. I came to serve. So I came, and so, man, this is one way that I've personally have been convicted in the last few weeks. Uh, most of the people that I invite over to my home to eat are friends and family. Um, I know, this is just, just me personally, I know that I have neighbors who think, look, and believe differently than I do. I've lived in my house for over three years. And maybe once I've invited people over to eat at my house, you know? And then part of that conviction is, man, how often do I even make time to sit down and eat at my home and have an actual dinner, you know? Or I'm blessing my family, right? 
See, the table was the place where Jesus, Jesus was always throughout the Gospels, he was either going to, at, or leaving the dinner table. And every time he was at the table, he was inviting people along with him that he was bringing into his mission. That's how he showed, that's how he showed the mission of God. So how do we combat this? I mean, I mean, one way that we do this to show more love than mercy, I, I really believe there's, there's an incredible amount of research coming out. There's, a, there's the, um, she's a PhD uh, professor at the Harvard Medical School, and she's done decades of research to talk about the importance of families eating dinner together. And, and uh, people are picking up on that and talking about it, and, and there's, a, there's a pastor and theologian named Alan Hirsch, and he says that if, that if Christians invited people to eat with them the way Jesus did, that there would be no more need for big evangelistic rallies anymore because the mission of God would just take off their communities and neighborhoods. And so the way that we combat it, one, is to, as families, create time to sit down at the dinner table together. And at the end of the, at the, end of the sermon, uh, actually, while you're here, you probably got, if you're in our database and Amy talked about getting the weekly updates, you probably got some resources in your inbox about how to, how to if you're like crazy busy family and you're like, man, I don't, know how, I don't even know how to like cook, okay? There's some great resources on how to kind of create that rhythm and habit, and there's some statistics and some some articles there about why having a family meal is so important. So, so I'm just going to challenge you. I mean, that's one way that we, that we carry out the mission of Jesus with more mercy than judgment is the table. And if you don't have a family, I mean, you maybe you're in a season of life, you're empty nesting, you, you don't have kids yet, you're single. Let me just encourage you and challenge you. Uh, try eating more meals with people this week than not with people. And just start there. Instead of alone in your car or at your desk or whatever, and have your phone tucked away in your desk or in your bag or something. Just try that. Just start there. Start with eating food with other people and then see if that doesn't spark having conversations and carrying out the love of Jesus with more mercy than just. I know you may be like, I don't understand how food and judgment and mercy work out. Listen, like no one's ever mad with a full stomach, right? You know? Like have you ever tried to eat food with someone and they just have terrible table manners, and it just makes you so angry. All right. It's a great way to practice more mercy than judgment. All right? I mean, we judge people. Anyway, okay. Just try it. Just try it. Let's just try it as a church. Let's just see what happens. Okay. Second, second warning sign that, that, we're, that we uh, want the kingdom with no concern for the king. Uh, we find ourselves only trusting God when things are good. Okay, and this is not to bring shame on anybody because I want you to know if you're in a really hard season of life and you're just not sure where God is and you've been calling out him, you can't hear him, this is not to bring shame on you, okay? This is, this is not. But I just want just to make it clear and, and kind of show us here that this same crowd that found it easy to cheer for Jesus as he entered the city would be the same crowd that raised hands to vote to have him crucified, Okay? They thought that Jesus couldn't deliver the kingdom they wanted, and so they got rid of him. See, when glory and kind of the like high standing and being seen by others is the end goal, it's easy to get rid of these kingdom standards. Remember the psalm that we just quoted earlier? We read Psalm 118, those verses. Uh, we're going we're gonna to hear that more uh, in, in chapters 12 and 13, that, 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 uh, that psalm being quoted. But what's interesting is that they're, they're quoting these verses, those those. You know, Hosanna, save us, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, but the verses right before it, 
Kind of famous verses, too, that Jesus quotes to him, and he says, The stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. I mean, the irony is kind of thick there, right? Like, like the verse before the ones they were quoting was talking about how Jesus was going to be rejected, but here they are calling him. See, Jesus was the answer to their deepest desire, but not their stronger one. See, here's the, uh, here's the thing about, like, when it talks about the, the stones that the builders rejected. See, there are stones, the stones in our life, that God places stones in our life that are, that are stumbling blocks, that we, we have a few options when we come in contact with them. Jesus is the ultimate stone that we come in contact with in our lives, and we have to figure out what we're going to do with them. Are we going to submit to this king, or are we going to do what they did and reject him? See, I'm, like, personally, I'm kind of a stone kicker, you know? Anybody, you, you know, you're on a walk or something, and you're on the sidewalk, and there's a stone, and you just see how far you can kick it down the road before it either goes one way or the other? See, I've got things in my life all the time that, that I've got to, I've, I know I've got to do something with, that I know I have to come to terms with, and, and I've got, I got an option. I, I can either process it and see it and think through it in the light of what Jesus says and what's, what's required of me according to the king or I can just kick it any stone kickers anybody got some things in life that that you don't want to deal with the bad and bring it to God because it's easier to pretend like everything's good Enneagram sevens what's up anybody let's just have fun yeah 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 see it the stones that we kick down the road are the thing are the things that, that yeah we don't want to deal with we don't want to have that hard conversation with someone because it's easier just to keep everything f- fine at face value. This is maybe especially true of the holidays coming up. I don't know. You know, holidays bring out the best and worst in every family. It's like holidays and weddings, right? The best and worst in every family. And see, see, we come to Jesus when things are good and we find ourselves talking to God when things are good, but when things are bad, we'd rather just focus on kicking that stone farther down the road than dealing with it than just having an honest conversation. Or maybe you're in that season where that's the stone in your life that's right there in front of you is just a bigger weight than you can handle. And you got a kind of a decision to make, right? Do you take this to God and you trust and believe that God can handle it and wants to walk through this season of life with you? Or do you not go to him? I've heard people say, like, God won't give you more than you can handle. And I don't know how true that is. I wonder if it's, if it's more God will only give you what it takes to bring you to him. See, God doesn't want you to handle stuff on your own. He doesn't want us to come in these seasons of life and and try to figure it out on our own before we come to him. He wants to deal with this with you. See, the crowd in this story, they they just kept kicking the stone down the road, the stone that, that they were supposed to be a blessing to their enemies that they were supposed to love, that they were supposed to love the Lord their God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength and their neighbor as themselves. But they just kept kicking it through. They wanted Eden. They want that right relationship, that prosperity, that power of the kingdom of David, but they didn't want anybody else to have it with them. They wanted Jesus to be a great military leader like David, but he was coming to die at the hands of their enemies instead of kill them. The stone that they wanted to get over was that things couldn't get better until they got worse. See, the stones we come across in our lives, our opportunities to see God for who he really is, 
And we may not get our way, and it may not be easy, but it will be worth it to see God work in us and through us in that moment. Remember what Paul said? When Paul said that, uh, that he, for a long time, had been given a thorn in the flesh and a messenger from Satan to torment me. Those were his words. I love it. Paul is just super extra. Like if he can turn the volume to 10, he takes it to 12. You know what I'm saying? Like a messenger from Satan to torment me. Now, we don't know exactly what it was. Some people think it's like Paul's talking about like a, like a mental illness or ailment. Some people think that it was literally like a, like a demonic spirit to torment her, him or maybe both. Um, but what it was is that it was a stone that was in his path. And he, and he had to figure out, if he, was he going to keep kicking it down the road or was he going to deal with it? And he could have refused to deal with it, but he said that he pleaded with the Lord. And he came to God and had like a, like that Greek is basically like he had a really intense conversation with Jesus about it three different times. And you know what he got in return? Is he got the word of God speaking to him and saying, Paul, my grace is good enough for you. And don't worry, because in your weakness, my power is made perfect. And so let me just say, if, if, if you're in a moment where you find it hard to go to God because things aren't good right now, let me just, as a pastor here, ask you, please talk to God about it. He's, a, he's, the, he's not a father who won't talk to you unless you have it all together. He's a father who's standing in the road waiting for you to come because he wants to give you his robe. And he wants to give you his ring and to kiss you on the cheek. And he wants to look at you and say, hey, I love you. It's okay. I'm, I'm with you and my grace really is, like I promise, my grace really is good enough. It's sufficient for you. So here's, here's the third kind of warning sign that we might want the kingdom more than we want the king. Is that it's hard to do things for God that are done in secret. It's hard to do things for God when it's in secret. The crowd worshipped Jesus publicly and they hailed him and shouted for salvation. And then you know what they walked away with? Their reward. Right? They came to him publicly, they threw the leaves down, they put their cloaks down, and you know what they got for it? That's what they got. Right? See, they, if you come and you pay eye service to Jesus, you walk away with your reward. That's what Jesus said, right? In Matthew 6, verses 1 through 7, he said, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. See, if the motivation is just like public glory, then Jesus, God's a God who gives you what you ask for. You get it, right? Because he said, if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets to be honored by others. Because I tell you, they have received their reward in full. See, the crowd came because they wanted to maybe check the box and say, maybe, man, maybe if this whole thing works out, like at least I'm on the winning team here, you know? Like anybody never know someone was a fan of a team until they won the national championship? Right? That's what, they get their reward. You know, they get the t-shirt. Great. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And I tell you, They've received their reward in full. But when you pray, 
Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Uh, about a year ago, I was telling a mentor of mine um, that I was praying for like all the stuff that like a pastor should pray for, right? You know, all the good things, all the R's, revival, renewal, re, you know, rejuvenation, whatever, like all the, all the things we're supposed to pray for. And uh, my mentor, he said, Matt, um, he said, man, God's not going to give that to you. Like you're probably not going to lead like a great movement right now. And it hurt my feelings, okay? All right, and I was like, oh, you know, why do you say that? And he said, man, if that happened to you, it would crush the interior walls of your heart. He said, man, you need at least another decade of, of being alone with God multiple times a day before you could even think about something like that. And uh, totally true, okay? Because uh, I, you guys probably don't know anything like this, but like, I'm really good at, at escapist behaviors, you know? Like when, like when hard conversations come around, I'm really good at disappearing to do yard work, right? Like I'm, I'm great at stuff like that, you know? And, and, and like I'm really good at thinking and like standing up here and, and preaching and praying and doing my job and stuff, but like I'm not as good at not losing my temper when the second dinner plate has been thrown on the floor by a toddler. You know what I'm saying? Like, my panic words are always words I would say in the pulpit. You know what I'm saying? Like, not always. I mean, he, like, like I was listening to a pastor. He said he prayed for 13 years. My mentor's telling me 13 years he prayed for all of this incredible stuff to happen. All this, and, and it was all public stuff. It was all stuff, man, I want to lead a great ministry I want to see X amount of people come to my church. I want to see all these great things. For 13 years, every Saturday night, he said he would pray for an hour, all right, an hour straight. And then eventually, just after 13 years, every Saturday, never missing an hour prayer of Saturday night, asking for God. I mean, that's like something good to do. Like, you know, that's like at face value, you're like, man, that's, that's, a, that's right, good for him. But he realized at some point God just told him, he said, stop. He said, shouldn't this just be enough? Like, shouldn't just us talking together be okay? Because what he realized was it was harder for him to do things in public or it was harder for him to do things and want things in his private life with God than he wanted publicly. See, the eye service, if we do something for eye service, if we do something for public recognition, then you get it. And that's, what, and that's your reward. That's the reward that we get. That's the reward the crowd walked away with. And so my mentor, he told me this. He said, power in the public place comes from strength in the secret place. See, that hidden place with God where you meet with God and you can hear his voice and you speak to him and you, no one may ever, ever know about it. That's where true strength and power comes from. That's where the glory of God is, is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's the secret place. Elizabeth Elliot, she says this, talking about prayer and being alone and quiet before God just to hear him and no other voices. She said, silence, as someone said, is the mother of prayer and the nurse of holy thoughts. And she says, silence cuts down our sins, doesn't it? See, we can't be sinning in so many different ways if we are being quiet before God. Silence nourishes patience, charity, and discretion. 
discretion, those things that you do for God and for nobody else. For so long, discretion and secrecy was, was considered a spiritual discipline in the Christian church until about 150 years ago. See, time alone with God, doing things in secret for him and for nobody else, which many, like I said, for 1,500 years, 1,700 years of the church was considered a spiritual discipline. It keeps us from living out of our false self, which is putting on that, that mask for everyone else to see, but living a whole different life on our, in, our, in our hearts and in our souls. It's way easier for us to be seen doing good public stuff than it is to be prayer, pre, present with those around us, attentive to other people's needs and prayerful. And, and like our culture, this is so weird. I mean, flipped. I mean, this is totally countercultural to the way we live right now. Like, like think about it. Giving, so if you just think about where we send our money and giving as a, as a culture. Uh, this year in the U.S., giving to charity, any kind of charity at all, it, just general charity that includes any nonprofit, I- any kind of good work in the community, anything. It, it may, they're thinking by the end of the year, it may hit $100 billion this year. That's great. But according to the latest data, in the U.S., they think digital ad spending alone. So that's not including paper marketing. That's not including you know, billboards, anything like that. But just digital ads you know, the things that as you're scrolling through Facebook pop up for you, they think that by the end of 2022, that'll hit $239 billion. Just one leg of marketing. See, see we're made to want to do things for the public eye, right? But, but Jesus asks us to do things in secret. See, discipleship is becoming more like Jesus. It's about inward change that happens in the hidden place with God. It's, it's more about becoming like Jesus in the hidden place than it is about behavior modification. Because if you get good enough at beha- just changing your behavior, not that that's not important, but if that's what you get good at, then that's what you get. But Jesus wants something deeper. He wants that time with you. And we, like, we must become a people of prayer more than we are people who pray. All right, so this might feel a little overwhelming because maybe you're sitting there and you think, okay, well, I'm a, I'm a, like I'm a full-time stay-at-home parent, okay? And, and kids just are never quiet, right? Like they're never alone. Or maybe you're thinking, man, I'm so busy with work. I, like I'm constantly stressed out. Maybe you think, I don't have margin. Like thinking about having meals with other people, thinking about taking time to pray, it's a little overwhelming, let me introduce you, if you're feeling exhausted or overwhelmed, let me introduce you to your patron saint, the patron saint of exhaustion and being overwhelmed. Her name's Susanna Wesley. See, Susanna Wesley, she was married to kind of a bum. His name was Samuel Wesley. He was a pastor, and he was known more. He was a brilliant man, was writing a, this incredible work that got into all the original languages of Job, which Job is one of those books that like, you think you should read, and then you start reading it. And it gets not fun fast, right? So he's going through Job. He's in the Hebrew. He's getting into it. But he was known more for that. He was supposed to be pastoring people. And he had a family at home, a wife with 10 kids. Okay? So on any given evening, you could walk by their home. You would almost never see the husband at home. But you would see a woman surrounded by 10 children doing one of two things. 
This is the legacy of the people who lived in the town around them. One, she would either be sitting at the table with her kids eating, or two, she would be sitting in a chair while the kids ran around and did whatever they did, and she would have her apron pulled up over her head. Okay? I thought that was funny, too, when I read that. But it was through these two simple acts of dedication that she passed on an incredible legacy of following Jesus that sparked one of the greatest moves of God in the last thousand thousand years. See, she had two sons that came out of John Wesley. It was one of them. See, John Wesley, he was the founder of the Methodist Church and the Wesleyan movement. Really the spark, what God used to spark the first great awakening and revival that America ever experienced. They believe that millions of people have come to know Jesus because of the ministry of John Wesley. And John Wesley attributes his love for Jesus and prayer in the scriptures to his mother, Susanna. See, it wasn't for her public glory that she did this. Her husband was off chasing that, trying to become a pastor and a well-known academic in the world of the church. It, was only during, it wasn't only during the times that things were good and glamorous with the scene. like It wasn't like she like pulled her apron of her head and like the birds from Snow White would come and clean her kitchen and everything. Like that's what we think like prayer is kind of like. You know what I'm saying? Like you get alone and then there's like some Tinker uh, Tinkerbell fairy dust that comes and you're like, oh Jesus. You know, that wasn't it. I mean, it was a woman who had, who had birthed 19 children and had 10 that was basically abandoned by her husband to be home and take care of a home back in the day where the pastor's home was basically open to anyone in the small town and could walk in. And she didn't do anything extravagant. She didn't do anything unbelievable. She didn't preach to thousands of people. What she did did is she got her family together for dinner. And she pulled her apron over her head and got to the secret place with God. And she invited people, people from that parish where her husband was the pastor have tales remembering whenever they came in. She invited them in for dinner and they sat down and ate. And they, heard, and they heard her pray over them, and they knew that she had a power and a connection to God that they had not experienced anywhere else. See, the people who ran into Susanna got a taste of what the kingdom of God and the mission of Jesus really looked like. So, so men, women, kids, guys, get to the hidden place with God. There's no substitute for intimacy with God in our lives. There's just not. There's no amount of knowledge, there's no amount of podcasts, there's no amount of books, there's no amount of information that can do the work of becoming more like Jesus that getting alone with God and praying can do. And there's no amount of mission that we can do than getting our families or getting our friends, getting our neighbors, sitting down and eating food together and showing what it looks like to feast on Jesus. There's no replacement for that. So, so two practices today that I want to challenge us on. Uh, one, as I kind of mentioned it earlier, uh, I would love, I would love for, for some people in here to take up the challenge of just twice this week, two times, all right? So if you eat two to three meals a day, seven days, you got, you got right around like between 15 and 21 shots of doing this, Okay? Two times this week, if you have a family, make time to get your family sitting down and just eating food together with no devices on and no music in the background. Just try it, okay? 
if, you, if you're not in that season of life, you're in a different season of life, twice this week, I'd love to replace meals that you would typically eat alone for whatever reason and just eat with other people, with at least one or two other people. And just try that this week. Let's try that. The other one I want to I encourage you to do is that if you've been reading the book uh, that we're doing in growth group or whatever, we, you've already kind of gone through this practice at this point. Um, but, I, but I'd love this week to, for you to try something uh, twice this week at some point. Get somewhere where there's no distractions and there's no one else and, and get a timer that does not allow you to get notifications and distractions from a phone. Okay, so like a watch or like a clock or something. Set a timer for three minutes and the only thing you pray is, God, what are you telling me today? And that's it. And, and as things pop up in your head, say, okay, I guess you're trying to tell me about that. Thank you, Jesus. But just take that moment to like set alone, be with God twice this week. All right, if you do take the challenge, I'd love to hear. If you don't, no worries, I'll never know. But if you feel like you had something and it was like, man, this was helpful, this wasn't helpful, man, let me know. Okay, I won't share it with everybody. It won't be for eye service, okay? Nothing like that. I understand how that could be contradictory to what I just said. But listen, listen, everybody, if nothing else walking away today, please take time to be with our King Jesus this week. Get alone and pray. Uh, AJ and Kay are going to come up and continue to lead us in worship. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for how good you are. Thanks for how much you love us. Jesus, thank you that you came to establish a kingdom that lasts forever. A kingdom of peace, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom where every tribe, tongue, and nation here on earth can cry out to you the same. That that as we cry out, Hosanna, save us, be with us. Jesus, we know that you already have. That while we were still sinners, you showed your your, your love for us, that you died for us on the cross. You've called us a people by your name. You've given us a home and a family. And Jesus, I pray this week, as we take those times to be alone, to get in the secret place to meet with you, as we sit down to eat food with other people, meet with us in those times. Holy Spirit, make your presence so real in those moments that that it's undeniable for the people with us, that, that, that there really is a God who came to bless us and to save us. And Jesus, we know that all this is true because of what you've already done for us. And we love you, and it's your name that we pray. Amen.